Welcome to the Tim Talks Politics Podcast, a conversation on government, citizenship, and America's place in the world. I'm your host, Tim Malash. Let's talk some politics. Hello and welcome back to Tim Talks Politics Podcast. So glad to have you here with us today. And today we're going to continue our read-through of the UN Charter. And this one we cover chapters 7 through 12 and of the Charter. And this explores the roles and vision for the Security Council and other UN organs uh, in facilitating issues of global importance like conflict resolution, economic development, and social exchanges. And the question that kind of comes up as we talk, you know, read through and talk through this is how best should we interpret these articles? Are they aspirations and goals of a new international organization? Are they a strategy or a system of rules? Or if we want to really put a twist on it, is it a strategy made up of more goals? Uh, You have to remember that the UN was kind of moving into uncharted waters a little bit. Yeah, we had the League of Nations and everything, but that collapsed pretty ignominiously. And uh, and so this new venture in global governance uh, was going to be done differently. And so it, there had to be some new ground broken. And so as we move into the middle part of the UN Charter, we're going to be exploring some of this more uh, cohesive structure, or at least an attempt to form a more cohesive structure for a new international organization. So that's where we're headed today. Let's go ahead and dive in. Chapter 7, Action with Respect to Threats to the Peace, Breaches of the Peace, and Acts of Aggression. So what do we do when bad guys are on the loose? Article 39, the Security Council shall determine the existence of any threat to the peace, breach of the peace, or act of aggression, and shall make recommendations or decide what measures shall be taken in accordance with Articles 41 42 to maintain or restore international peace and security. So we were uh, kind of treated to a massive foreign policy crisis in the last month, namely the collapse of Afghanistan and the takeover by, of that country by the Taliban. And this would be a matter that, you know, in the normal run of everyday business at the UN would get evaluated, maybe even referred to the Security Council. And it's kind of up to the Security Council, whom we discussed in terms of their organization in the last episode, to determine, is this a a threat to peace? Now, the the standard here, is it a threat to peace to Afghanistan? Absolutely. Is it a threat to the peace of the people of the United States? Possibly. You're dealing with a uh, a terrorist, uh, a group that's recognized as terrorists, who have supported terrorists, etc. But the Security Council is more concerned with threats to global uh, peace and security. Remember, this was an organization that was coming out of the context of World War II. Its focus is trying to prevent a global great power war. Uh, that's kind of the overarching objective. And so that's what they're really going to be focusing on. So when they look at something in the global scene is fairly minor, but it like Afghanistan, but is major for the people of Afghanistan, for the people of the United States, and maybe some regional actors as well. The question they have to ask themselves is, can this thing spin out of control? And how do we prevent it from spinning out of control? And what do we do to prevent it from spinning out of control? That's kind of where they uh, evaluate these things. Article 40, in order to prevent an, an aggravation of the situation, so preventing things from spinning out of control, the Security Council may, before making the recommendations or deciding upon the measures provided for in Article 39, call upon the parties concerned to comply with such provisional measures as it deems necessary or desirable. Such provisional measures shall be without prejudice to the rights, claims, or position of the parties concerned. The Security Council shall duly take account of failure to comply with such provisional measures. So let's move over to another global hotspot that is surely going to heat up uh, in the coming years, and that is Taiwan and China. Taiwan's uh, been pretty good about not making a concerted move towards uh, independence, but uh, China's also getting pretty um, pretty aggressive in their posture towards Taiwan, regardless of what Taiwan says and does, and that includes dozens of military flights skirting Taiwanese airspace. Most people interpret this as probing Taiwanese air defenses. 
Well, let's say that we actually have a situation where a Chinese fighter or military jet strays into Taiwanese airspace and actually gets shot down. Now, this creates a situation, and this is probably one of the more likely scenarios that can lead to an armed conflict between China and America. But let's say China returns fire and they start a general military conflict with Taiwan. Well, what does America do? Does America jump in and defend Taiwan? Does do we send military support? What does that do in relationship to China? So, in this respect, uh, this would be a serious situation for the um, Security Council to consider. And before America and China come to blows, uh, they might actually ask America, China, and representatives of Taiwan uh, to come to the Security Council to actually kind of like talk. You know, try to talk through, I guess, the situation. And the Security Council might actually ask America and China, particularly in this example, to uh, make some provisional arrangements to ensure that they don't come to direct blows, uh, that the conflict can be resolved without it turning into an America-China war. Uh, and then, of course, if America or China choose to actually follow those uh, provisions, the Security Council will note that as being like, is this a good faith actor or bad faith actor? So this kind of starts the early ball rolling in terms of what's conflict resolution going to look like, what's the Security Council's basic uh, basic approach to conflict going to look like going forward. Article 41, the Security Council may decide what measures not involving the use of armed force are to be employed to give effect to its decisions and may call upon members of the United Nations to apply such measures. These may include complete or partial interruption of economic relations and of rail, sea, air, postal, telegraphic, radio, and other means of communication and the severance of diplomatic relations. So going back to that point of, you know, let's say America and China are, are about to come to blows over Taiwan, and uh, the UN Security Council calls both, well, they could call both countries in the Security Council. Both countries have permanent seats on the Security Council, uh, but there could be a discussion over like, hey, what are we gonna do about this? Uh, China, would you mind kind of like pulling back from firing missiles at Taiwan? America, could you pull back from deploying your aircraft carriers to uh, the, the Straits of Taiwan? Uh, and what if both countries say no? What if one or one of the countries says, no, we're not going to do that. It's full steam ahead. Well, at that point, the Security Council might take a next step to say, like, hold on, you're kind of this is a solvable crisis and you're plowing ahead to make it worse. You're trying to escalate. And so they might recommend um, non-military measures to try to check the behavior of the individual who's not working to, for a more peaceful outcome or the individual country. Uh, and the measures are outlined here, whether it's um, you know economic uh, sanctions or uh, putting travel embargoes and restrictions on that country, etc. But maybe those fail too, and we move on. Article 42, should the Security Council consider that measures provided for in Article 41 would be inadequate or have proved to be inadequate, it may take such action by air, sea, or land forces as may be necessary to maintain or restore international peace and security. Such action may include demonstrations, blockade, and other operations by air, sea, and land forces or members of the United Na of members of the United Nations. Now, key point here. The UN Security Council can then up the ante, right? The initial suggestions were not followed. Initial rounds of punishment were not followed. So Security Council can up the ante and say, fine, what we're gonna do is we're gonna create a naval blockade uh, around said country, or we're going to try to more forcibly uh, separate the warring partners, uh, not partners, but you know what I mean, the warring, um, or warring countries. So, maybe they do that that's kind of like the next step right so you go non-military then you go to like military means but maybe they're not violent and now we're going to up up the ante even more but the key point here is to recognize that the un security council does not have command over or does not deploy forces they can recommend that those things happen but it is up to members of the united nations to actually take on that action themselves and the the un the security council kind of provides a sanction uh for that Article 43, all members of the United Nations in order to contribute to the maintenance of international peace and security undertake to make available to the Security Council on its call and in accordance with a special agreement or agreements, armed forces, assistance, and facilities, including rights of passage necessary for the purpose of maintaining international peace and security. So let's say America and China are going to come to blows. Let's say that uh, all attempts to prevent that coming to blows are being are failing. And uh, and 
the UN Security Council says, okay, what we need to do is we need to uh, end the problem that started this in the first place. We need to separate China and Taiwan, right? There's shooting between the two of them that are that's bringing America and China close to blows. So the solution is to end the fighting over Taiwan to try to separate the two fighting forces. So for that, we need a naval force to patrol the Straits of Taiwan and to keep Chinese airplanes out of Taiwanese airspace. They may ask for a multinational flotilla of vessels to basically form a blockade or defensive shield uh, between um, between Taiwan and China to separate uh, their fleets, their defenses, etc. Well, that's really dangerous. It's high risk. Uh, there's no possibility that uh, that would be without casualties. And the real twist here would be uh, if America was already an engaged actor there, China might not trust America to be a good faith actor. And so China might say, okay, you could put a flotilla there, but it can't be comprised of U.S. ships. Well, now we have a situation where it's the understanding by the United Nations that other countries of the world would have the capacity and the willingness to actually make that flotilla happen, uh, make that you know naval uh, force happen. And so it's kind of relying on the cooperation and good faith of uh, non-crisis actors to assist in uh, resolving the issue. Such agreement or agreements shall govern the numbers and types of forces, their degree of readiness and general location, and the nature of the facilities and assistance to be provided. So again, it's going to be like, okay, once the UN Security Council makes these decisions saying, hey, we need some kind of military response here, some type of military support, uh, the member countries who are going to provide it now need to work with one another in the Security Council to make it happen. It's kind of like the Security Council just establishes the need, maybe the mission parameters, maybe even the rules of engagement at some level, but it comes down to the member countries to actually make it happen through another sub-level of agreements. The agreement or agreements shall be negotiated as soon as possible on the initiative of the Security Council. They shall be concluded between Security Council and members or between Security Council and groups of members and shall be subject ratification by signatory states in accordance with their respective constitutional processes. So while the Security Council is you know, fully respecting the sovereignty and process of different countries, it's kind of acting as the, um, the networker of, making, of bringing together the countries to form like whatever multinational force they're trying to form to end hostility somewhere. Article 44, when the Security Council has decided to use force, it shall before calling upon a member not represented on it to provide armed forces in fulfillment of the obligations assumed under Article 43, invite that member, if the member so desires, to participate in the decisions of the Security Council concerning the employment of contingents of that member's armed forces. So once the Security Council decides to use force, if there's a particular country that they're interested in having contribute forces um, to a multinational force, they'll, they might invite that country, if it's not currently a member of the Security Council, to have kind of like a provisional role or a provisional place in the Security Council to kind of speak into that process and speak into what that could look like. So again, there's this respect for the sovereignty of other countries, the sovereignty other countries exercise over their own militaries, over the deployment of their militaries and their uses. Article 45, in order to enable the United Nations to take urgent military measures, members shall hold immediately available national air force contingents for combined international enforcement action. The strength and degree of readiness of these contingents and plans for their combined action shall be determined within the limits laid down in the special agreement or agreements referred to in Article 43 by a Security Council with the assistance of the Military Staff Committee. This is probably the closest that the UN comes to having its own kind of like military arm. It is not a military arm, it is not under the command of the Security Council of the UN, but what this is suggesting is a very specific form of military force, specifically air forces, and they're asking that members should have components of their national air forces readily available for international enforcement action. And so, and the reason they're asking for this is twofold. One, when a crisis occurs, you know, uh, action and response is of the essence. You know, you don't get to just kind of like figure things out. Uh, it ensures that margin is built into force structures in uh, different air forces. 
secondarily, uh, Air Force, uh, why Air Forces? Why? Well, those are the, some of the hardest um, assets to move about to accommodate some of the more complex um, uh, basing requirements. Uh, and also they're gonna form the backbone of any uh, transportation uh, structure of, of ground forces were they to follow. So that's, that's partly why. There's a logistical reason why you're asking for uh, national air forces to be, uh, segments of national air forces to be kind of like uh, detailed for UN Security Council missions. The second, uh, well actually that was the second, the third reason uh, why you'll be asking this or why the UN might be asking this is because the uh, the air forces are going to be uh, useful for um, enforcing uh, UN Security Council mandates without putting boots on the ground. So it, it's kind of like an intermediary step. So a good example of this might have been the imposition of no-fly zones in Iraq immediately following Desert Storm in the early 1990s. These no-fly zones, which were present in the northern and southern zones or regions of Iraq were basically used as air shields to prevent the uh, uh, the regime of Saddam Hussein from uh, carrying out uh, genocide against um, against ethnic minorities in the northern and southern regions of that country. And you can do that without committing troops on the ground is kind of the idea there. And again, this was used in the Balkans as well in the 90s. Uh, so this particular article and the use of air, uh, air forces uh, to support UN Security Council endeavors is uh, pretty well used. I mean, it's been commonly used. Another reason why air forces uh, are being set aside is you have to have some common language. Like you have to train your air forces to work with other air forces. And this is true of any military component, but when it comes to air forces, when it comes to uh, standards about movement uh, through the air and uh, traveling through uh, national airspace of other countries, you have to be able to have um, some common uh, language and common uh, technical understandings to understand what's being done. So there's a degree of cross-training that needs to occur here for the military personnel involved in these missions. So there's a lot of reasons why they might be specifically asking that member countries uh, designate Air Force components to be basically ready for UN Security Council missions. Article 46. Plans for the application of armed force shall be made by Security Council with the assistance of the Military Staff Committee. Ooh, who is this Military Staff Committee? Glad you asked. Article 47. There shall be established a Military Staff Committee to advise and assist the Security Council on all questions relating to the Security Council's military requirements for the maintenance of international peace and security, the employment and command of forces placed at its disposal, the regulation of armaments and possible disarmament. The Military Staff Committee shall consist of the Chiefs of Staff of the permanent members of the Security Council or their representatives. Any member of the United Nations not permanently represented on the committee shall be invited by the committee to be associated with it when the efficient discharge of the committee's responsibilities requires the participation of that member in its work. So if you hear about America's uh, Chief of Staff, uh, the the military uh, chiefs of staff, you've been hearing a lot about them actually in the um, in the wake of the Afghanistan crisis. Uh, they are part of the military staff committee. They don't just, uh, the joint chiefs of staff don't just oversee the combined operations of the U.S. military and advise the president. Uh, the chief of the joint chiefs of staff, the head of the joint chiefs of staff, I can't believe I'm forgetting his technical title, uh, it, they also serve on the Military Staff Committee uh, at the UN. The Military Staff Committee shall be responsible under the Security Council for the strategic direction of any armed forces placed at the disposal of the Security Council. Questions relating to the command of such forces shall be worked out subsequently. So, the UN Security Council deems that a, a potential crisis is a threat to international peace. Economic uh, sanctions and incentives aren't working. The actors are not separating themselves or trying to peacefully resolve their differences. Uh, the presence of military hardware and assets in the conflict zone hasn't stopped them. And so the Security Council says, okay, it's time for a more active military 
engagement here. Uh, we need a peacekeeping mission or we need an actual intervention uh, to separate these two fighting parties. That task is then detailed to the military staff committee, which draws up the actual strategy for how that mission is going to be carried out. You know, once boots go on the ground, here's what they're going to do. Here's what the command structure is going to look like, the force structure, etc. That's all handled by the military staff committee. The military staff committee with the authorization of the Security Council and after consultation with appropriate regional agencies may establish regional subcommittees. Article 48. The action required to carry out the decisions of the Security Council for the maintenance of international peace and security shall be taken by all the members of the United Nations or by some of them as the Security Council may determine. Such decisions shall be carried out by the members of the United Nations directly and through their action in the appropriate international agencies of which they are members. All right, so that's kind of like just wrapping up that segment of saying, okay, once these decisions are made, um, the respective members of the Security Council and the United Nations more broadly who are cooperating and contributing are then um, responsible for implementation. Article 49. The members of the United Nations shall join in affording mutual assistance in carrying out the measures decided upon by the Security Council, if that wasn't clear already. Article 50. If preventive or, or enforcement measures against any state are taken by the Security Council, any other state, whether a member of the United Nations or not, which finds itself confronted with special economic problems arising from the carrying out of those measures, shall have the right to consult the Security Council with regard to a solution of those problems. So let's say, uh, let's say Taiwan and China are coming to blows, nothing's working, there's going to be a forceful intervention, and uh, Taiwan, which happens to be the central hub of the uh, microchip industry globally, uh, it, that's going to pose a real problem and interrupt the production and supply of microchips around the world. This is going to adversely impact major economic sectors in several countries. Those countries, countries can say, hey, you know, trying to put a blockade around Taiwan to prevent China from intervening there is going to interfere with these supply chains. It's going to adversely impact our economies. What are we going to do about it? They can then go to Security Council and try to work out kind of like, okay, what do we do to prevent a economic uh, catastrophe from following on after a political catastrophe? Article 51. Nothing in the present charter shall impair the inherent right of individual or collective self-defense if an armed attack occurs against a member of the United Nations until the Security Council has taken measures necessary to maintain international peace and security. Measures taken by members in the exercise of this right of self-defense shall be immediately reported to the Security Council and shall not in any way affect the authority and responsibility of the Security Council under the present charter to take at any time such action as it deems necessary to order to maintain or restore international peace and security. In other words, the right of self-defense for countries is retained just because the hope or the aspiration is for uh, countries to sort out their differences in the UN, to step back from armed conflict until you know the situation is sorted out in the Security Council. Uh, this article recognizes that they're just bad actors in the world and they are sometimes just going to attack another country uh, regardless uh, or irrespective of international norms and governing um, regulations or irrespective of the norms of international law. And in such cases, the charter recognizes a country's right to self-defense. And uh, they, the expectation is that if you're a member of the UN, you will notify the Security Council and that of the incident and that you will tell them, hey, we're acting in self-defense when we undertake whatever military countermeasures we're going to undertake against uh, said attack or said threat. But throughout this charter, you should be seeing that there is a respect for national sovereignty. There is a respect for the right to national self-defense so, you know, that derives from the idea of sovereignty. So there's a common, this is just an aside, but there's a common conspiracy theory out there that suggests that the United Nations is basically a shadow world government, that its goal and objective is to create a one world government and rule over everything. And who knows? I don't know every actor in the UN. I don't know 
what the thoughts are on global governance and everything like that. I do know that most people who actually work in the UN recognize that the world is a pretty complex, messy place. And so they'd probably be the first to kind of hear that kind of conspiracy and almost laugh at it. Who knows? Maybe there are some real zealous people out there who who think that the world would be better off with a one world government and that the UN is the best uh, entity to put that forward. But what we can say is in the founding document of the UN, in its charter, there is no indication that the UN has some unique authority that places it in a hierarchically higher level than individual nation states that it recognizes that the fundamental building block of the global system is in, is nation states and that those nation states have certain rights like sovereignty and nat- and uh, right to self-defense and does not seek to invade on those rights. That seems pretty clear. Chapter 8, Regional Arrangements, Article 52. Nothing in the present charter precludes the existence of regional arrangements or agencies for dealing with such matters relating to the maintenance of international peace and security as are appropriate for regional action provided that such arrangements or agencies and their activities are consistent with the purposes and principles of the United Nations. So hey, European Union, you want to make a more peaceful, stable Europe? By all means, go for it. African Union, you want to make a more peaceful, stable, economically sustainable Africa? Go for it. The United Nations, again, is not placing itself above other regions of the world or asking countries to grant unto it all powers relative to international peace and security. That just is not the objective. The members of the United Nations entering into such arrangements or constituting such agencies agencies shall make every effort to achieve pacific settlement of local disputes through such regional arrangements or by such regional agencies before referring them to the Security Council. The Security Council shall encourage the development of pacific or pacific settlement of local disputes through such regional arrangements or by such regional agencies, either on the initiative of states concerned or by reference from the Security Council. This article in no way impairs the application of Articles 34 and 35. Fairly straightforward and self-explanatory. Let's go on to Article 53. The Security Council shall, where appropriate, utilize such regional arrangements or agencies for enforcement action under its authority, but no enforcement action shall be taken under regional arrangements or by regional agencies without the authorization of the Security Council, with the exception of measures against any enemy state as defined in paragraph two of this article provided for pursuant to Article 107 or in regional arrangements directed against renewal of aggressive policy on the part of any such state until such time as the organization may, on request of the government's concern, be charged with responsibility for preventing further aggression by such a state. So this starts to work out the situation of, okay, what happens when um, two countries go to war One's a bad actor, and they both happen to be members of this regional organization. Say, two countries in Africa go to war, and they're members of the African Union. Uh, what happens then? Like, you have the African Union being involved in mediation and uh, and diplomacy. You have the Security Council involved. You know what happens where? This is this article is designed at ensuring that the UN is not working at cross purposes. With those, uh, with those regional organizations. And it kind of sets out the expectation that when in conflict, the objectives of the UN Security Council should override the objectives of, an, of a regional organization, particularly considering that if the warring parties are in the regional organization, the regional organization itself might be um, having a difficult time taking action because it's you know uh, tied up by conflicting loyalties. The term enemy state as used in paragraph one of this article applies to any state which during the Second World War has been enemy of any signatory of the present charter. So again, this is kind of like the post-World War II world and the initial signatories of the UN charter were former allies. And so when they talk about enemy states here and the renewal of uh, hostilities, they have a specific list of people in mind, people who were parts of the Axis uh, powers, Germany, Japan, and their Italy and their allies, uh, who have not signed on to the UN Charter. So they have a pretty particular list of countries in mind here uh, as countries to, you know, to, for lack of a better phrase, to have on a watch list. Like these are the countries we're going to be looking at, at to be most likely to cause trouble in the near future. Kind of outdated segment, but 
uh, but still, it's an interesting note of what was forefront and con of concern to the Security Council and the UN in the early days. Article 54, the Security Council shall at all times be kept fully informed of activities undertaken or in contemplation under regional arrangements or by regional agencies for the maintenance of international peace and security. Again, we're just trying to maintain international peace and security. That's the objective. And so sounds like they're going to be asking for more reports like, I guess, the UN loves to do. Chapter 9, we're about halfway through today's segment, International Economic and Social Cooperation. Article 55, with a view to the creation of conditions of stability and well-being which are necessary for peaceful and friendly relations among nations based on respect for the principle of equal rights and self-determination of peoples, the United Nations shall promote higher standards of living, full employment, and conditions of economic and social progress and development, solutions of international economic social health and related problems, international cultural and educational cooperation, and universal respect for and observance of human rights and fundamental freedoms for all without distinction as to race, sex, language, or religion. Now, this statement uh, is kind of a strategy but really it's goals and aspirations uh, kind of thing and uh, one of the things it definitely notes is that uh, is or gives uh, indication of is the liberal values of the UN and the UN Charter and this is important because while the UN kind of uh, has a particular worldview in terms of what kind of values create a more a more peaceful world, uh, it's important to note that those values are not always aligned with uh, maybe national cultural values in different places. And that part of the work of the economic and social cooperation being articulated here in this chapter is about um, finding common ground, overcoming those differences so that these values can be can be shared, you might say. All right, Article 56. All members pledge themselves to take joint and separate action in cooperation with the organization for the achievement of the purposes set forth in Article 55. So this is basically like, yep, we are a international liberal organization and all members sign on to this charter basically pledge themselves to likewise uh, become uh, internationally oriented liberal value countries. It's a subtle one sentence statement, but it does set up um, the potential for cultural value clashes within countries uh, between those who would say, yes, we think liberal values are fantastic and we think everybody should have them, and those who, well, disagree, for lack of a better word. Article 57. The various specialized agencies established by intergovernmental agreement and having wide international responsibilities as defined in the basic instruments in economic, social, cultural, educational, health, and related fields, basically all of human life, shall be brought into relationship with the United Nations in accordance with the provisions of Article 63. Such agencies thus brought into relationship with the United Nations are hereinafter referred to as specialized agencies. And these are basically just uh, subunits of the United Nations uh, that you know, compile data, write reports, make recommendations on those areas of human life. And this would probably be uh, a good point in which to mention the UN Sustainable Development Goals, the UNSDG or the SDGs. This is a multi-year effort that the UN has undertaken over the last several years, and I think they're still going. But it's basically an effort to improve the quality of life for every human being on earth through dramatic reductions of poverty, uh, making sure everybody has access to clean drinking water, those kinds of things. And so you can check them out. I'll link to them in the show notes and you can get an idea of kind of like what this looks like in, in action. Article 58, the organization shall make recommendations for a coordination of the policies and activities of the specialized agencies. So much like the UN's uh, Security Council coordinates uh, coordinates security policy, or rather not policy, but coordinates uh, action relative related to security. This particular organization or this part of the UN is going to act as a coordinator of all these other sub-agencies. Article 59, the organization shall, where appropriate, initiate negotiations among states concerned for the creation of any new specialized agencies required for the accomplishment of the purposes set forth in Article 55. So again, like the Security Council initiating negotiations between member uh, countries when um, 
when coordination is required on some initiative like the Sustainable Development Goals. Article 60, responsibility for the discharge of the functions of the organization set forth in this chapter shall be vested in the General Assembly and under the authority of the General Assembly and the Economic and Social Council, which shall have for this purpose the powers set forth in Chapter 10. And speaking of Chapter 10, let's go there and talk about this Economic and Social Council, the composition of which is found in Article 61. The Economic and Social Council shall consist of 54 members of the United Nations elected by the General Assembly, subject to the provisions of paragraph 3, 18 members of the Economic and Social Council shall be elected each year for a year of term of three years. A retiring member shall be eligible for immediate re-election. At the first election after the increase in the membership of the Economic and Social Council from 27 to 54 members, in addition to the members elected in place of the nine members whose term of office expires at the end of that year, 27 additional members shall be elected. Of these 27 additional members, the term of office of nine members so elected shall expire at the end of one year and of nine other members at the end of two years in accordance with the arrangements made by General Assembly. What should you take out of that? It's basically staggering elections and additions of new members to account to ensure consistency of leadership to make sure that there's not like a constant turnover of all the same people leaving all the time at the same time. Each member of the Economic and Social Council shall have one representative. Now what is this Economic and Social Council going to do? Well, functions and powers are to be found in Articles 62 through 66. Article 62. The Economic and Social Council may make or initiate studies and reports with respect to international economic, social, cultural, educational, health, and related matters, and may make recommendations with respect to any such matters to the General Assembly, to the members of the United Nations, and to specialized agencies concerned. It may make recommendations for the purpose of promoting respect for and observance of human rights and fundamental freedoms for all. It may prepare draft conventions for submission to the General Assembly with respect to matters falling within its competence, and it may call in accordance with the rules prescribed by the United Nations international conferences on matters falling within its competence. Basically, this is where you get the UN Sustainable Development Goals. This is where you get conventions like the UN Conventions on Human Rights or UN Conventions on Women's Rights. Uh, they, this Economic and Social Council produces these things, which then go to the General Assembly to get reviewed, voted on, uh, implemented by member countries, what have you. Article 63. The Economic and Social Council may enter into agreements with any of the agencies referred to in Article 57, defining the terms on which the agency concerned shall be brought into relationship with the United Nations. Such agreements shall be subject to approval by the General Assembly. It may coordinate the activities of the specialized agencies through consultation with and recommendations to such agency agencies and through recommendations to the General Assembly and to members of the United Nations. Article 64. The Economic and Social Council may take appropriate steps to obtain regular reports from the specialized agencies. Man, these reports, always reports. Let's get more reports. It may make arrangements with the members of the United Nations and with the specialized agencies to obtain reports on the steps taken to give effect uh, to its own recommendations and to recommendations on matters falling within its competence made by the General Assembly and may communicate its observations on these reports to the General Assembly. So it is all about writing reports in the Economic and Social Council and, uh, and taking those reports and the results of those reports and the findings of those reports and pushing them on up the chain into the General Assembly for consideration. Article 65. It sounds like, well, let me pause here. It sounds like I'm talking down these reports and everything, but let's face it, the world is a really big place. There's a lot of data and information here. And in this case, the Economic Social Council and many other uh, agencies and sub-agencies of the UN are tasked with trying to take in all that complexity and understand it and put it in some format that will be accessible and useful uh, to member countries. So I'm not talking down uh, this reporting. It's helpful. It might be helpful to think of the UN primarily as a uh, as a entity that is focused on um, on collating information around the world, uh, really. Um, that really is kind of what it uh, seems to be focused on. 
Article 65, the Economic and Social Council may furnish information to the Security Council and shall assist the Security Council upon its request. Again, with a bunch of that information that they're doing reports on. Article 66, the Economic and Social Council shall perform such functions as fall within its competence in connection with the carrying out of the recommendations of the General Assembly. It may, with the approval of the General Assembly, perform services at the request of the members of the United Nations and at the request of specialized agencies. And it shall perform such other functions as are specified elsewhere in the present charter or may be assigned to it by the General Assembly. So this section actually provides for some flexibility within the uh, Economic and Social Council's mandate uh, to uh, engage with member countries and different organs of the UN uh, in different ways. It doesn't really set any real strict guidelines, at least not here. Voting. Article 67, each member of the Economic and Social Council shall have one vote, and decisions of the Economic and Social Council shall be made by a majority of the members present and voting. Simple enough. Procedure. How are we going to carry out the business of this Economic and Social Council? Article 68, the Economic and Social Council shall set up commissions in economic and social fields and for the promotion of human rights and such other commissions as may be required for the performance of its functions. So. We're going to write a bunch of reports, so let's set up commissions to facil facilitate those reports. Article 69. The Economic and Social Council shall invite any member of the United Nations to participate without vote in its deliberations on any matter of particular concern to that member. Article 70. The Economic and Social Council may make arrangements for representatives of the specialized agencies to participate without vote in its deliberations and in those of the commissions established by it and for its representatives to participate in the deliberations of the specialized agencies. The Article 71, the Economic and Social Council may make suitable arrangements for consultation with non-government organizations which are concerned with matters within its competence. Such arrangements may be made with international organizations and where appropriate with national organizations after consultation with member of the United Nations concern. Lots of organizations being discussed here. What are we talking about? Well, in the world politics field, academics talk about what are known as policy networks. Maybe if you took an AP American government class back in the day, uh, you heard about iron triangles. Iron triangles are considered kind of like the policymaking entities, or it's a model of policymaking in the United States that connects uh, lobbying groups with uh, with the relevant uh, congressional committees, with the relevant sub-branch of the national bureaucracy to make policy. Well, at the world politic level, that idea is kind of talked about in terms of policy networks, and some of the key nodes of those policy networks are national governments and their relevant bureaucracies, much like these iron triangles, and uh, and international organizations like the UN and the sub-agencies here listed, but then they make mention of non-government organizations, also known as NGOs. NGOs are favorites uh, within the United Nations and other international organizations as being those kind of like non-government uh, private organizations that are focused on uh, specific policy matters or policy adjacent matters, such as, um, I'll say the uh, the Red Cross is a non-government organization, and the International Red Cross seeks to uh, improve uh, health and well-being, particularly in disaster and conflict zones. And so they might be incorporated into efforts to, uh, to ensure, say, like children in the developing world get vaccinated against the polio virus, for example. Uh, that might be something where the Economic and Social Council makes use of an NGO or interacts with an NGO in addition to member countries to uh, accomplish a goal or to move a policy objective forward. Article 72, the Economic and Social Council shall adopt its own rules of procedure, including the method of selecting its president. The Economic and Social Council shall meet as required in accordance with its rules, which shall include provision for the convenient meetings on the request of a majority of its members. I don't think we need to comment too much on that. Let's go to Chapter 11, Declaration Regarding Non-Self-Governing Territories. So this is interesting. Even though the UN is built on the assumption that the world is divided up into nation states, uh, it is not ever that clean and pretty. That is because this is the world, and the world we live in reality is messy, complex, and nuanced, and that includes with how we are politically organized. So there are nation states, they form the bulk of the world, and 
the bulk of the world's population lives within the recognized borders of nation states, but you have these non-self-governing territories. These are uh, entities within the world that kind of have their own political identity, their own recognized political spaces, and yet they're not fully recognized nation states for whatever reason. What do we do about these? Article 73, members of the United Nations which have or assume responsibilities for the administration of territories whose peoples have not yet attained a full measure of self-government recognize the principle that the interests of the inhabitants of these territories are paramount and accept as a sacred trust the obligation to promote to the utmost within the system of international peace and security established by the present charter the well-being of the inhabitants of these territories and to this end to ensure with due respect for the culture of the people's concern their political economic social and educational advancement their just treatment and their protection against abuses to develop self-government, to take due account of the political aspirations of the peoples and to, and to assist them in the progressive development of their free political institutions according to particular circumstances of each territory and its people and their varying stages of advancement. Now, when this was written in the late 1940s, large uh, portions of the world were still governed by European powers. The British Empire was still a going concern. Um, and in fact, we're going to see in the in the first couple of decades following uh, the UN Charter, we see the process called decolonization, where a lot of former colonies in Africa and Asia become independent or become self-governing entities. And so, this article is really targeting those. Uh, I would I was going to say those former empire uh, holdings or those former portions of empires, but even at the time of the writing, they were still part of empires and uh, the ensuing years would see them become those former portions of an empire and become more self-governing. All right, further objectives uh, of the uh, of the member countries who are overseeing these territories is that they are to further international peace and security. Again, that's the overarching goal uh, to promote constructive measures of development, to encourage research and to cooperate with one another and, and when and where appropriate with specialized international bodies with a view to a practical achievement of social, economic and scientific purposes set forth in this article and to tr transmit regularly a security gen secretary general for information purposes subject to such limitation as security and constitutional considerations may require statistical and other information on a technical nature relating to economic, social, and educational conditions in the territories for which they are respectively responsible other than those territories in which chapters 12 and 13 apply. Article 74. Members of the United Nations also agree that their policy in respect of the territories to which this chapter applies no less than respect of their metropolitan areas must be based on the general principle of good neighborliness due account being taken of the interests and well-being of the rest of the world in social, economic, and commercial matters. So, in other words, look, just because you govern this territory and oversee it doesn't mean it's your personal playground. You still have to think about it in a global context. You know, your actions, Great Britain, in your far-flung empire, uh, have a global impact. And so you it's expected that you take... Uh, do notice of that. And that brings us to the close of the segment today of the second of three parts on the uh, UN Charter. I did say earlier we were reading through chapters 7 through 12. I made a mistake there, misread my Roman numeral. We're reading chapters 7 through 11. So that's the conclusion of chapter, uh, chapter 11. And so what we'll do is we'll pick up next time with the remainder of the UN Charter. But for today, I'll leave you with this question. In the case of the UN Sustainable Development Goals, and again, I'll link to those in the show notes, so take a look at them. Do all these reports, studies, and recommendations uh, by, the, by UN organs like the Economic and Social Council, do you think they actually move the needle on human security, human development, uh, or, or you know, economic development too? Are, as many political scientists theorize, domestic factors, are they, are they more influential? So the idea here is the UN is very focused on making the world a better place, particularly making it a more peaceful and secure place. And they recognize correctly that you know human suffering usually in one place can have a ripple effect. They recognize correctly that uh, economic and political upheaval 
and instability can have a ripple effect uh, at a global level. That's, that was like the big lesson of the 20th century with World Wars I and II. But a lot of political scientists still believe that you know, the root causes of those problems that spiral into global problems quite often start as domestic problems. So what is more influential here? Is knowing what challenges you face internally? Is having an international organization supply you with kind of like statistical reports on the global status of clean water? Is that gonna help you really get clean water uh, in your own country? Uh, will it give you access to better practices, better funding, better security? Or are those things more domestically centered? This question kind of gets at a larger question that we're kind of hinting at throughout this series, this mini series on the UN Charter. And that is what exactly is the role of the UN uh, in not just global governance, which is kind of like its own sphere, but even in, as a partner uh, to independent countries, like what role should the UN play? Because that is often a, uh, a hotly debated topic. It is one here in the United States. So that's kind of what that question is driving at. If you want more information on the UN Charter, the Sustainable Development Goals, if you want to go back and listen to uh, the first uh, podcast that I did on the UN Charter or the one I did before that on the NATO Charter, uh, you can go back and look at those. You can find links to all that stuff in the show notes at timtalkspolitics.com. A reminder that uh, podcast listeners get 30% off a uh, subscription to my uh, weekly newsletter, the weekly brief. You can uh, subscribe to that by going to timtalkspolitics.substack.com. But we close today with the last word from former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan. He said, the United Nations, whose membership comprises almost all the states in the world, is founded on the principle of the equal worth of every human being. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Tim Talks Politics Podcast. Thank you so much for joining the conversation whenever and wherever you're listening from. If you're in a generous mood, I'd love it if you would leave a review of the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps to improve the show and increase its visibility in the marketplace of ideas. And please be sure to check out the show notes at timtalkspolitics.com where you can find additional content and subscribe to my newsletter, The Weekly Brief. This is Tim Malash. Until next time, have a great week, and I will see you again on the Tim Talks Politics Podcast.